Looking forward to what the Lord has with that in store in the future. Hey, uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I, I too wanted to just give a quick plug for our April conference. Hey, I want to I tell you this. Because there's two Sunshine Coast churches doing this together, and I already know that there's people coming from Vancouver Island and Langley and stuff like that, don't wait to get registered, okay? Because we only have so much space in here. And, uh, and so you should go on and, and get uh, registered for that sooner rather than later. So I'll just mention that to you too for the April 15th um, conference. The other thing is this, is that uh, I'm heading off to Israel with the crew from our church. We are leaving on Saturday. We're going to go to Egypt and Jordan and Israel. And the way the trip works is that we're actually going to be gone for three Sundays. And uh, Brian and Blake are going to hold down the fort here. And uh, it's going to be an awesome time. I'm really excited to get away with the crew from our church. And uh, Alex is going, Colleen's going, myself, uh, Reba, Donna. Who else is going? I'm blanking out now. George is coming. And uh, Reba's bringing her brother. And there is people joining us from all across Canada. There's about 38 in our group and uh, traveling with uh, Pastor Brent from Langley and Pastor Joel from Calgary, uh, two good buddies of mine, and it's going to be an awesome time. And so um, we're going to miss you guys. Uh, it's a long trip this time around. We, we've done this trip before. We've done 12 days. This is 17 days. I'm not looking forward to being away from my family for that long. Um, but uh, it'll, it's going to be awesome. And so if you'd keep us in your prayers, and we'll be praying for you guys, and uh, we'll come back and, and share how it all goes. Okay, so we're, we're taking off next Saturday morning. Right on. So, hey, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles. Last week, Phil was here and shared the word with us, and so I just thought we'd start right from the start of the Sermon on the Mount here. We're uh, looking at this, and, and take a read through, and then continue on. And so, let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says this, Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we just come before you. Uh, we come to hear you speak to us, Jesus. Um, you've been raised from the dead forever. You are glorified. We're, we read in the book of Hebrews that, that God spoke in many ways in the past through the prophets a long time ago, but in these last days, he's spoken to us uh, through his son. His son, whom you have appointed the heir of all things. He is the exact imprint 
of your nature. And so God, today as, as we come and we look at the words of your son Jesus, we ask Lord that you would change our hearts. We ask God that you would transform us. We ask God that there would be greater Jesus dependency in our lives. That we would not be self-sufficient but totally Jesus dependent. And so Jesus, we just ask that you would speak to us today. That by your spirit you would anoint the teaching of the word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. Hey, so this morning... We're going to take a peek specifically at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And um, you know if you're a regular around here, it's not too often that we slow down and just dig into some passages. Often we're moving a chapter at a time as uh, we teach through a book. But as we come to this part in the Sermon of the Mount, it's, it's important that we just lay this groundwork before we begin to move on a little quicker through the rest of it here in this passage. And so let me back up for a moment and we'll get our bearings because we haven't been in the gospel of Matthew for two weeks and we'll get our bearings of where we've been as we, we move forward. Matthew's gospel reveals Jesus as king. That's the focus of his gospel. And he mentions more than any other gospel, uh, the kingdom of heaven. It's a gospel that was primarily written to Jewish people. And it identifies Jesus as king, but not just king of Israel, king of the world, the king of heaven. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we've, we've come to this part of the gospel of Matthew where we've We've watched the development of the kingdom, the announcement of the kingdom, the coming of the king. And here in, in Matthew chapter 5, as we've been seeing, this is the kingdom manifesto. That's what I've called these messages. Um, where Jesus declares the, the values of his kingdom. This is, in a sense, the constitution of the kingdom. This is the rules that he lays down for his subjects to follow, in a sense. And what we've seen is this, is that firstly, the kingdom of heaven and the rule of King Jesus is a rule that, it, that extends itself first over the hearts of mankind. That Jesus is to take throne residence in my heart first. And so the scene in Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus begins to declare the constitution of his kingdom, his manifesto, uh, the, the laws that are to rule over the subjects of the kingdom. He came to Galilee. He sat down on a hillside, on a mountainside with his disciples. And he called them to himself. And the crowd has gathered. Jesus has sat down to teach. The, the disciples have come near to him. And this is really the Mount Sinai of the New Testament. Everything that Mount Sinai is to the Old Covenant, to the Old Testament, Moses going up and receiving the Ten Commandments, everything that that is, that mountain was, to the Old Testament, so this is to the New Testament, the New Covenant. And the contrast is the desolate wilderness of Mount Sinai versus the lush, beautiful, fruitful, grassy, green slopes of the Galilee where Jesus sits down. The wilderness of Sinai was a, a desolate, uninhabited place with no people. The Galilee was a region full of cities and villages and thousands of people. At Sinai, God came down and there was thunder and there was lightning and there was a dark cloud and there was fear. And God hid himself from the people in the crowd and uh, the, from, from the people's eyes. And when the law came down, the scripture tells us 3,000 were killed. But here on the mountainside in Galilee, again, God comes down. God calls his disciples to himself. And this time, God does not hide himself, but he sits right in the midst of his followers and he teaches them. And first in the Beatitudes, we, we looked at how Jesus described what his followers are in character. We saw that the kingdom of God is firstly a kingdom that is to rule over the, the attitudes and the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Outward form is secondary to the inward rule of Jesus Christ. An outward 
And I, I, this, is, this is one of the themes of the, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that, that a j- relationship with Jesus is not about outward conformity, but it's about an inner transformation by the Spirit. And so Jesus taught us about the attitudes and the character of his followers, and then we saw that he, he taught about it, our identity as his followers, that we are both salt and light, salt of the earth, light of the world, and it's important that we understand this identity that Christ has given us. And so, if the Beatitudes reveal the character that is to govern our heart, and our identity is this, is that we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world, then Jesus is working in my life, he's working in your life to bring a harmony between what is happening on the inside in my heart and the actions on the outside of my life. Uh, Now we come to this new part in the sermon and really it's where the rest of Jesus begins to focus here. He's going to stay on this theme and the theme is this, righteousness. The subject of righteousness. Now I think of righteousness, I'm like wow that's a big churchy word, isn't it? I'm like, sometimes I'm like what does that mean? I've sat in church all my life. What does the word righteousness mean? Well, it simply means this. Righteousness is a conformity to a certain set of expectations, a certain set of things laid out. And that can apply to all sorts of different things in life. You know, I think about a relationship between a husband and wife or between a parent and a child or between an employee and an employer or a citizen and the government. I was thinking about it's conformity to a certain set of expectations. I, was, I remember when I was dating Lisa, you know, we started, ooh, the love and all this stuff and the early feelings and all that was going on. And you know, when you're in one of those dating relationships, one of the things is you don't know what the standards are. What's expected of me? This is all so new and it's like, should I call now? Do I look desperate if I call right now? No, who's kidding who? I'm desperate anyways, you know. Or do I, do I, do I wait? If I wait too long, is she going to think I'm, I'm ignoring her? And you don't know the, the expectations of the relationship. And righteousness is simply this. To live according to the expectations in the relationship. And so, you know, hopefully as you spend time together and, and you know, do premarital counseling and get married and live with one. You learn expectations in marriage and you, you begin to fall into your roles and you learn to trust one another and, and be comfortable with one another. And righteousness is f- the fulfillment of expectation within relationship. And there is expectation from God. There is expectation with Jesus Christ in our relationship with him. And so righteousness is simply this. To live according to his expectations for me. And so I need to know what his expectations are for me so that I can live the righteous life. And so if we're citizens of the heavenly kingdom, then there are certain things that are expected. There are certain things that are required of citizens of the heaven. And so later later in this sermon, Jesus will actually say what? He'll say this. To seek first the kingdom and his righteousness to seek first to live according to the expectations that I've placed upon you as a subject of my kingdom and so here's this kingdom that's come on the scene the announcement of the kingdom the arrival of the king he sat down with his disciples he's teaching and the question is what is the expectation of this king How do I live righteously as his subject? If he's my king and I've bowed the knee to him, then what is he requiring of me? How do I live for him? And so Jesus is going to begin to hit this subject of righteousness. And we're going to see it in the weeks to come after we get back from Israel. You know, he's going to say, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, don't be angry in your heart. You know, you've heard it said. Do not commit adultery. I tell you that if you lust in your heart. He's going he's to hit all of these things and he's going to help us understand the principles of the kingdom of God. And so let's read again verse 17 through 20. As Jesus begins to transition into these thoughts on righteousness. He says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. But to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Two things jump out to me. Just initially to give us a bit of framework in this, in this text. Two parts really to what Jesus says. In verse 17 to 18, he tells us this. My life, my ministry, my message is in absolute harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament. Me, Jesus, your king, and the Old Testament scriptures have a relationship with harmony, of harmony. I've not come to abolish it, but to have harmony with it. Then Jesus says this in verses 19 to 20, that though his teaching is in absolute harmony with the Old Testament scriptures, it's in complete disharmony with something else. It's in complete disharmony with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so as we, as we move through this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus is going to talk a lot about the message of the scribes and the Pharisees and where they are missing the mark on what the kingdom of heaven is truly about. And the message of Jesus is absolute harmony with the Old Testament scriptures, but it is also absolute disharmony with the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. Interesting. You know, that kind of explains why there was so much trouble between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, they had trouble with him and they had, and he had trouble from them and he, he made it clear. I mean, we're going to see this throughout the gospel of Matthew. He's going to go after these dudes. If there is one group of people that set Jesus off and that ticked him off, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. And I don't think it took very long in the ministry of Jesus um, that the scribes and the Pharisees began to question the legitimacy of this king, of this so-called prophet who had come on the scene. You know, he didn't hang out in their schools of theology. He didn't count himself amongst their disciples. He didn't come from the right city. He denounced their teaching. And he did not quote them. You know, it was like, oh, Gamaliel said this, whatever, whatever. He was, you know, quoting the famous Pharisees and this and that. He spoke and he taught as one with authority. He didn't teach like them. He taught with grace and truth. Uh, you know, the love of God flowed through Jesus Christ as he told his parables and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he mingled with sinners. I mean, he sat with them. He went into their homes. He, he, he mixed with them. And I think about Jesus. You know, Jesus did not preach politically correct fluffy messages. He wasn't worried about whether he was offending the religious establishment or not. In fact, Jesus was critical of the establishment. He went after the Pharisees. He pointed out their flaws. And he taught people, don't do as they do. And so it's no wonder that questions began to arise in the hearts of the Pharisees about Jesus. Who is this guy? Who does this so-called prophet think that he is? Does he even line up with the Old Testament? I mean, look at us. We are the scribes and the teachers of the law. We interpret these things for the people. Who is he to challenge our authority? Does he even teach the scriptures? Does he believe the law of Moses? What is this man teaching? And so he speaks of the kingdom of heaven, uh, you know, but what is this kingdom of heaven? What is the standards of its righteousness? He speaks of being salt and light. He talks about these beatitudes. Well, why doesn't he quote Moses? Well, why doesn't he quote the great thinkers of our, of our Pharisees and our teachers of the law? And so the Pharisees were stumbling over Jesus and they were stumbling over his relationship to the law. And so, in understanding this, um, Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in understanding Jesus, in, in gaining a biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is, it's important that we hear what he's saying here. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, I think that one of the mistakes we sometimes make is to divide this book into two. It's actually wrapped in one cover. I don't know if you've noticed that about your Bible. <laughs> it's one book. And it has one central theme from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's found in Genesis 1-1 and he's found at the end. And he's at the center of the whole story. The only thing that tells us there's a separation is the story of the cross. But it's one story. It's one book that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus addressed the thoughts that were rolling around in the hearts and in the minds of the Pharisees and many of those who heard him teach, what he says is very important for a Jewish person, really, if you think about it. If you thought I came to abolish the prophets and the law, you're wrong, he says. You're mistaken. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So let's wrestle through this a little bit. The law and the prophets, what does that refer to? Well, that just refers to the Old Testament in its entirety. Whenever you read that in the scriptures, the law and the prophets, it just means Genesis to Malachi. That's what it's referring to. And specifically, the law specifically speaks of the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And what do they reveal to us? Well, it's the story of the beginning. It's the story of God calling out his people and leading them to the promised land. But in the midst of that whole story, God establishes his law, his standards for righteousness. Remember what righteousness is? It's an expectation of what it is to be in right relationship. And God established that. And so, you know, really when we look at the writings of Moses, you can kind of divide them up. You can divide the law up. And I want to do that for you this morning to help us get our heads around this a little bit. And the law is really divided into three parts. You have the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. So let me explain. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. The moral law directs righteous behavior in terms of right and wrong. The moral law tells me, you know, murder's wrong. Adultery is wrong. You know, honor your father and mother. Do not have any gods before me. And so those are moral laws that direct the heart of man. But the writings of Moses also include judicial laws. So this is where sometimes we get confused about the laws of Moses. The judicial laws explained how the nation of Israel was to operate. When you have a king, this is how it's going to work. You know, in your city, you're going to have judges and this is how that's going to work and you're going to have uh, cities of refuge when there's a murder and this happens someone can go there and this is how you're to prosecute when there's breaking of the law and this is how you're to do this and this is how you're to do that and so there's judicial law that was the legislative law for the nation of Israel specific to Israel specific to their circumstances as a as a country as a nation then there's the ceremonial law in the writings of Moses. Ceremonial law directed the worship practices of Israel. It directed the Levites. This is how you serve God. This is how you're to dress when you serve God. This is how you're to serve in the temple. When someone brings a sacrifice, this is what it's to look like. It's not to be with blemish. It's da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? And ceremonial law taught the people how to worship God and how to come before God. And so when Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. He fulfilled ceremonial law. Think about it, let's work backwards. He fulfilled the ceremonial law with his death, burial, and resurrection. He gave himself as a sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. His blood was shed on the cross. His blood was shed for the sin of mankind. The Bible tells us that when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. Ceremonial law was fulfilled and now mankind had access to God through the person 
of Jesus Christ through the work of the cross. No longer would man worship God and approach God on the basis of shed blood and uh, the shed blood of animals, but on the basis of a once for all sacrifice, the lamb of God without blemish or spot who is slain for the sins of the world. Jesus fulfilled ceremonial law. We don't go to a temple. Well, if you notice that this isn't a temple, I'm not wearing Leviticus. You don't call me priest. Not wearing Levitical robes. We don't. That's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then there's the judicial law, which is specific to the nation of Israel, and so is its fulfillment. That's what I would say as I was just stewing on this. Jesus is not just king of heaven, but he's king of Israel. That's why it's exciting in our day, in, in this time, that there is a nation called Israel on the face of the earth because for 1900 years there wasn't. In AD 70, after Jesus had um, a, uh, fulfilled ceremonial law, after 40 years the temple was destroyed. Israel d- was dispersed and for for 1900 years, they did not exist as a nation. And now in the, in the last 60 years, just over 60 years, they've come back together. They have a, a land. They identify themselves as a people. Jesus is the king of Israel. And one day, though they do not yet acknowledge him, they will. The Old Testament prophets tell us that. That Jesus is coming back and that one day the nation of Israel will look upon him who was pierced and they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And they'll say, in the house of my friends. And they'll realize uh, their role in uh, what happened on the cross. And judicial law will be fulfilled in Jesus for Israel. I mean, Cities of refuge, Jesus will be their city of refuge, their king. He fulfills ceremonial law. He fulfills judicial law. And that leaves the moral law, which holds really the greatest influence over you and I. That's the one that's really pertinent to you and I. The Ten Commandments, in the Ten Commandments, God, when he came down on the mountain, heaven came down and met Moses, and the Ten Commandments were given The Lord laid down a law that is perpetual in its nature. Because it has to do with the relationship with man, with a person and his creator. Between man and God. And sin is simply this, transgression of God's law. Sin is an act that goes against the law of God, that breaks his moral commandments. And those moral laws of the Old Testament continue to stand because they define for us what sin is. They help me recognize what sin is. Without the laws of God, I would never be aware of the fact that I have sinned, that I'd broken his law, that I had transgressed against his righteous standards. And so these are standards that govern the relationship between men and their creator. And so the reality is is this, is that I need the law. You need the law. Because the law brings revelation of and conviction of sin. The law helps me to identify that just like you, I have fallen short of the glory of God and I need a savior. I've fallen short of his righteous standards. And so this law is still in effect. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And so when I break those laws, I sin against God. Even though I'm a Christian, even though I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, when I break his law, I sin against God. And so the moral law still applies to us and it will continue to apply to us until we're made perfect on the other side of glory. Day is coming. And so, you know, sometimes I wrestle with this. I don't know about you. I think, well, what is my relationship to this first half of this book? This old covenant. What is my relationship to the law? Well, we're not under the law in the sense that our salvation depends upon us keeping it. We have been saved 
by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life as the sacrifice for our sin. But the moral law of God continues to serve as a mirror. It continues to serve, to reflect the righteous standards of God. When when I look at the moral law, when I look at the writings of the Old Testament, and I compare them to myself, I see I have fallen short of the glory of God, and I am in need of a Savior. And when we go to the Old Testament and we spend time there, it should drive us to Jesus Christ. That's what I want to tell you. When you read the Old Testament, it should drive you to Jesus Christ because our righteousness is not on the basis of keeping the law, but our righteousness is on the basis of a relationship through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that makes me right before God, not my morality. And so it, so though the moral law does not and cannot save me, the, the moral law of God continues to be the rule of life. Great book in the New Testament that helps wrestle through all this is Romans, which is massive. Good luck. Uh, but Galatians. Galatians is a short, short little write letter from Paul that talks about this whole relationship. I encourage you to spend some time there this week. And so again, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law, the writings of Moses, the prophets, are those who came afterwards and they, they taught and they applied the law of God to the people of God and, and they brought the truths of those realities into their everyday life. And so when you think about Jesus and the law and the prophets, he says, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to abolish them. I have nothing to add to them except that I fulfill them. They point to him and he fulfills them down to the smallest detail. And so look, the reality is, you know, I stepped on a piece of gum or something like that. It's just driving me nuts. You can't hear it, but every time my right foot moves, <laughs> lovely. You know, there is no, and what we need to see is this, is that there is no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God. And there is no communion with God apart from fulfillment of the law. Let me say that to you again. Listen. There is no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God. And there is no communion with God apart from fulfillment of the law. The Jews make the, for, make the mistake of forgetting the first part. That's this. They forget that it's not, it's not just about fulfilling some rules. It's about a relationship with your creator. And Christians, on the other hand, on the other side of the cross, we could tend to make the other mistake, and that's this, that we just think it's all relationship, and there's no need for righteousness, for holy living, for living according to the standards that God's word sets down. That, that, that's a temptation for Christians. And we must, we must not separate those two. That the law must be fulfilled and, and we must have relationship with God. And Jesus lived a life that was perfect communion with God. That, that was perfect fulfillment of the law of God. And you know when I think about myself and I think about Jesus and I think about you and I think about Jesus... I said, man, I can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do what Jesus did. And so yours and my fulfillment of the law is dependent upon something called grace. Grace that comes through the cross, through faith in Jesus Christ. Unmerited favor of God. Through Christ, the scripture tells us we receive a righteousness that is by faith. Jesus imparts to us his righteousness. Though I can't fulfill the law, he fulfilled it and he imparts that, that to my bank account. He accredits that to me. And though we receive this righteousness from God, it depends on faith. Depends on faith. And so though I've broken God's law, because I place my faith in Jesus... My Father in heaven counts me as though I'd never sinned. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that is the story of salvation. It's grace. 
And Jesus alone fulfills the law. He alone lives in perfect communion with the Father. And Jesus, I mean, picture this. Jesus comes between me and the law. Jesus comes between me and the law. See, the law came between me and my Father who is in heaven. The law stood between me and God. And Jesus stepped into the middle of that and he fulfilled the law so that I could have access to the Father. And it's through Jesus that we find our way to the Father through his cross, through his work, through his righteousness that is imparted to us. And so I would tell you this. We should love the law. We should love the law. We should love it because I fall short of it. We should love it because we fall short of it. We should love it because Jesus fulfilled it for us. And when I love the law because, that I, because I see that I'm falling short of it, it causes a hunger for Jesus Christ to grow in me. A hunger for his righteousness. A hunger for communion with him. A, a hunger to be with him because he alone fulfills what I cannot fulfill. And so maybe sometimes we wonder what our relationship is to the Old Testament. What is the relationship of the Christian to the Old Testament? Well, just remember this. Jesus saw it as the word of God. He said that he had not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so our attitude to the Old Testament does something. Actually, our attitude to the Old Testament reveals something about our attitude towards Jesus. You know, the moment you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament is the moment you are questioning the authority of the Son of God himself. And when you do that, you will find yourself in great difficulty and trouble with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think of some of current trends in the church world, in theology, bringing into question, Genesis, of course, right off the hop here. Let's question the creation account. Let, let's, let's apply the, the thinking and theories of the world to the word of God. Well, no, it's just an allegory. It's just a narrative. It's not literal. It's just, you know, you can't take that as real. Look at the, the moment you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament, my friends, you are questioning the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, it was prophesied this of him, that the law of God is written on his heart. And Jesus said this, here am I, I've come to do your will. And God has written his law on our hearts as well. And we can't call into question his word because when we, are, when we do that, we are calling into question his very nature, his very character, his very essence. Jesus is the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 18, it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you have a pen in your hand, what is worth marking in your Bible is the words I say to you in verse 18. You know, as I was stewing on this, I just wrote that, I wrote the word authority beside that in the, index of my Bible in the margin. Time and time again throughout the rest of this sermon, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And Jesus introduces himself right here as the authority, as the king. He is the very word of God. He is the very word of God and he introduces himself as an authority of, that, that is greater than that of the Pharisees because the Pharisees and the schools of theology in their day and even the schools of theology in our day are like this. Oh, they quote so-and-so. 
quote so-and-so. Well, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this. And Jesus said, forget so-and-so. I say, I say, I say to you. And one of the things that Jesus says is that the enduring nature of the, the permanence of God's law has an enduring nature like heaven and earth. Actually greater than heaven and earth. And Jesus says not the smallest letter, not the littlest marks that distinguish whatever words, not the dot of an I or the cross of a T will, will disappear or cease until we are in heaven. When righteousness is our total impulse and I don't have to deal with sin anymore. You don't have to deal with sin. And righteousness is just what we do because we are in the presence of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. And so Jesus says this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Relaxing the law. Relaxing the moral standards of God. Is that not our culture? Just, you know, I was clicking on something the other day. I saw, oh yeah, you know, the government of Ontario is removing the words mother and father from all of their government forms. You know, I heard about uh, a principal on the Sunshine Coast um, who said the new uh, standard within schools, public school system, is not to say boys and girls. You're not, you're not to separate any longer on the issues of boys and girls. Blurring the lines of morality that God has set. And small seems insignificant. But small flaws are the most dangerous ones. And in the lives of Christians, small flaws are the most dangerous because they're the least noticeable. Most Christians, you know, lose their chance of serving in the kingdom, lose their chance to, to serve God and their chance of promotion because of the multitude of little sins, not the big single ones, the multitude of little foxes that destroy the vine. And we're reminded here as Jesus says these words that, it's, that it is possible to teach the law and not do it. But that greatness comes not from teaching it, but from doing it. You don't separate your lip and your life. The teachings of Jesus are teach and do. Lip and life. He says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus lived a life in perfect harmony with the scriptures. In perfect harmony with the law of God. There were no inconsistencies in Jesus. That's what made Jesus different from the Pharisees. There were no inconsistencies in his life. Inside to outside. No flaws. No little foxes. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they appeared to be the most holy people. You know, when you think about them, I mean, we mock them in our culture. You know, in church culture today, we mock the scribes and the Pharisees. But in their culture, it was like mocking Chuck Swindoll, man. It was like making fun of Billy Graham. They were considered, you know, the, the, the Grahams and the Swindolls of their day. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed theirs, everybody's shocked. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do with that. How can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Well, righteousness, holiness is not, is not an experience that we have, but it's a, something that we practice in our daily lives. It's honoring God's law as Jesus did while he was here on earth. And so in that sense, you know, 
Righteousness, to be righteous and to be holy is to be like Jesus, to say, there's Jesus, there's my standard. I need to seek to try and live like Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, essentially this. Don't imagine I came to make it easier. I I didn't come to make it easier in terms of fulfilling the law. I I, I haven't come to reduce the demands of the law. I've come to tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't have a hope of entering the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, let alone being counted amongst those who are least. And so again, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were considered the most outstanding people in the nation. They spent their time, their days, teaching and expounding the law of God. They were the authorities on the law of God. They gave their whole lives to the study of the law of God. They were outstanding in their practice of the law. In fact, the name Pharisee, do you know what it means? It means separated one. They separated themselves to the practice of the law of God. And they took it up a notch. They said, well, the law says this, but let's up the ante. We'll, 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 we'll give a bit of an umbrella over that and we'll put things in place that just help us go the extra mile in fulfilling the law. And so they wrote their own code of ceremonial acts, which was even stricter than Old Testament law. You know, Pharisees fasted twice a week. The Bible doesn't demand that anywhere. But they made that their practice because they wanted to go over and above in their desire to fulfill the law. I mean, these men were, in the minds of their nation, the ideal of virtue. They were the ideal of holiness. The average person watched and saw a Pharisee coming down the street and they thought to themselves, I have no hope of ever living like that person. I mean, this guy's outstanding in everything that he does to be holy. And and I guess it just causes me to think, what does holiness look like? What does righteousness look like? What does it look like to be a Christian? You know, when people say to you, oh yeah, you're religious, right? Like you should just stop and say, what do you mean by that? Like what is it that you're seeing that causes you to make that comment about me? Well, Jesus lays it down. And he says that righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees. If we're to see the kingdom of heaven. And as we go on in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 uh, here, we're going we're gonna to see that Jesus is going to share true teaching of righteousness and he's going to contrast what he's actually contrasting it to all the way through when he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and this and that is the teaching not of the moral law of the Old Testament but that which the Pharisees were teaching what they were teaching in their culture because they had a situation similar to that in the time of the Reformation that for hundreds of years when the Catholic Church had controlled everything the priests only spoke and read Latin you just You didn't have a Bible in your hands. You couldn't read it. You just did what you were told. And we know that in the days of the Reformation and the the centuries beforehand that the church was corrupt, that it was evil, that it worked its way into people's pocketbooks and it took advantage of them and it, it, it added ceremonial stuff to what God's word taught and it took people away from Jesus. And it wasn't until... Men like Luther began to translate the Bible into a language that the people could read that they saw, what what has happened to us? And a similar situation was happening for the children of Israel. You know, the whole Babylonian exile and all this. I mean, in the days of Jesus Christ, what language did Jesus speak? We, We read in the New Testament, he spoke Aramaic. What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Hebrew was a language that was gone from the everyday life of people and so the Pharisees and the scribes had control like the priests did in the 1500s in the Catholic Church. Said your life looks like this, 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 this. People didn't know what was up and what was down and they were torn up in their hearts because they were falling short of the glory of God and 
men were heaping upon them and taking advantage of them. And Jesus Christ came to set them free. And these Pharisees, they had an external righteousness. They wore the robes. They not only said it, but they did everything that they taught. But the problem was that when you read the gospel accounts, nothing brought forth the wrath of Jesus Christ like the Pharisees. Because their religion was external. Their righteousness was on the outside. They were whitewashed tombs and the law had failed to touch their hearts. And the terrible thing was that the religious form that they had blinded them from actually having transformed, changed hearts. They were hypocrites. We all got hypocritical streaks in us. But you know what the worst kind of hypocrite is? One who is unconscious. They don't know how far off they are. And the Pharisees thought everything was fine and they failed to see that before God they were impoverished in their spirit. When they weighed their lives against the law of God and they looked in the mirror, they saw themselves and they said, we do more than enough. I think they rolled their head. <laughs> we're so awesome. We fast twice a day. We do this. We do that. We wear our long robes. We teach this. We teach that. We go beyond. But they failed to let God's word touch their heart. Their religion was entirely external, entirely formal. And God knows our hearts. You know, when I think of the Pharisee, I'm convicted. God knows my heart. God knows your heart. God knows when we're putting on the outward form without an inward reality. And it's the danger for us as followers of Jesus Christ to slip into the patterns of the Pharisee where we justify ourselves before men, but God knows what's happening in our hearts. You know, I have to tell you that apart from Jesus Christ, I'd be terrified to let you into this heart. To tell you what goes on in my heart. The thoughts, the things that it considers and, and pushes me to do. And knowing Jesus means that I understand that it's not the righteousness of my heart that saves me. It's not the righteousness of my heart that saves, you, that saves me or your righteousness that saves you. And that's what allows us to be transparent in the family of God. To say I struggle. I deal with this. I'm angry. I have lust. I want to murder. Like I told you a few weeks ago. Whatever it is, we can be transparent. Because the things that are common for me are common for you. And at the same time, we want to hunger and thirst in our lives for the righteousness of God. Yeah, I remember Miss Wilson, uh, she taught English at Alfie for many, many years. Who had Miss Wilson? I'll tell you, Miss Wilson. She told me, she said, grade 10, grade 11. She had an English accent. Matthew Rowan, you're a jackass. <laughs> she was awesome. And Miss Wilson, she was right. I was a jackass. And, uh, you know, Miss Wilson would say this line. You know, imagine this. She was a believer, but she, it sticks with me. She would say this line. She would say, you want to know who you are, really are? When no one else is around, when no one else is there to see, the things that come out of you and the things that you do, that's who you really are. And it's the things that are in our heart that we're ashamed of. Because it's the things that are in our heart that reveal who we really are. That, the, that our hearts are corrupted and they're deceitful and they're full of sin and that they are in need of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, well, they were just concerned about ceremonial law, moral law. Is, is my hair right? Am I wearing the right robes? Does it look good to other people? Do I look righteous before men? 
That was typical of the Pharisee. Their religion was based on man-made rules and regulations that would even sometimes give them permission to break God's law. Did you know that? Jesus is going to talk about that later in this gospel. He said, you know, the word says, honor your father and mother. And you put rules in place so that you don't have to honor your mother and father. And you put your traditions before the law of God. That's why they took Jesus off. That was typical of a Pharisee. They were human, ex- human experts in, in rationalizing sin. And, and the reality is, is that's all of us. We're good at rationalizing our sin. The Pharisees were, you know, willing to break the law of God for their traditions and they'd rationalize it. They'd make excuses. They'd say, oh, well, we can do this. And humans are experts in that. And rationalizing sin just means to excuse yourself. Say, oh, well, you know, I- I'm okay. I did this because of this or that. And we explain it away. Explain away the things that we do and do not do. And that is the nature of a Pharisee. Did you know that? If you're rationalizing your sin, you're walking the line of a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisee, their religion was one that just revolved around them, themselves, their traditions. Their traditions caused them to focus primarily, you know, on their own righteousness. This had nothing to do with God. It was all about them. You know, their universe revolved around the Trinity. The Trinity of me, myself, and I. They're self-satisfied. The object of the Pharisee had inadvertently become not to glorify God, but to glorify myself. Do I look good? Do I look good right now? That's what they were about. And as they went about the practice of all their religious duties, you know what they thought about? Themselves. They weren't thinking about Jesus. They weren't thinking about the glory of God. They were thinking about their performance and how good they looked. And there was no worship in anything that they did. It was idolatry. I always think of that word idolatry. It starts with I. And they were serving themselves. And they were self-satisfied and focused on their own achievements, focused on their own adherence to tradition rather than focused on their relationship with the Lord. And you know, I have to wonder, are we guilty of the same thing? Are we guilty of the same thing? Have we turned our relationship with God into a religion that consists of certain things? I've decided I do this and I don't do this because I'm a Christian. I don't do this and I do this and that's what defines me. And when we're doing rules of I don't do this and I do this, we we settle down like a Pharisee into a hard attitude of smug self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. And the warning of Jesus is that we not fall into that error of the Pharisee. We must look at ourselves in the sight of God. We we must look at ourselves in comparison to Jesus. We must hold our lives up in light of his nature and in light of the law of God, which says you're falling short. Doesn't matter. Everything that you do in this whole game you play, you are falling short. Short of the glory of God. And you smug. You think you're better than others. And you're self-serving. And as Jesus teaches this message to the crowd, what we see is that the heart of the Christ followers to be that of the Beatitudes. This is important spirit, God. I'm mourning over who I am without you. I'm meek. Whatever strength I have, I give it to you. You put the bit in my mouth and you work your power in my life. Be merciful to me, God. I'm unrighteous. Uh, You know, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at, but I'm hungering and I'm thirsting after the righteousness of the kingdom and to know you. 
Look, I mean, the Beatitudes are really the test of your authenticity. They're the test of my authenticity. They're the test of our relationship with Jesus. And, and let me ask you this morning, how is your attitude towards Jesus? What is the condition of your love for Christ? You know, holiness and righteousness is not about what you can do for God, but it's about what God has done for you. Holiness is not a checklist of righteous acts. Holiness is an attitude of heart towards a God that loves you and has a heart for you. It's an attitude towards other people that honors and glorifies God. That does not look at itself and say I'm superior, but looks at other people and loves them as Christ loved them. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were more interested in the details than the principles. They were more interested in the actions than the motive that lay behind their action. They were interested in doing things for God rather than being with God. And in the kingdom of God, these teachings of Jesus should tell us one thing. In the kingdom of God, it's the principle, not the action that matters. What you think what you desire, the condition and the state of your heart matters to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm glad I grew up in a home. You know, one of my parents' rules in our house was this. On the outside, I don't care how you rebel. Dye your hair blue, spike it, do this, pierce, boo, 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 boo. In your heart, don't rebel against God. In your heart, don't rebel against the, the Lord. Because the condition and the state of your heart matters in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And look, you and I are not Christians because we chose to do some things and we chose not to do other things. This is not about external conformity. It's about inward transformation. Just Jesus Christ have your heart. This life of following Jesus is not about Self-satisfaction, it's about Jesus' dependency. Ever-increasing Jesus' dependency. And the life of the disciples should be really defined by their desire to know Jesus, by their desire to love Jesus. That's what it's all about. Loving him who first loved us. Yeah, I had this buddy in high school he was an A student, right across the board, top of the class every time. But um, he's like totally useless at almost anything else. And it was kind of like a joke between me and my friends. Could be like, oh yeah, yeah, look at his marks. Yeah, but he can't make craft dinner. Yeah, but he can't like change a light bulb. And it was like real. It was true. It was, it was like he had straight A's, but he was a flunk when it came to life. And you know, there's, that's true spiritually. You can have straight A's right across the board. And you could be a, a, a flunk at life, flunk in marriage, a flunk with your kids, a flunk at work, a flunk at this. And Jesus, as he teaches this manifesto of his kingdom and the values of his kingdom, he is, he's changing the thinking of the hearts of men, he's confronting the thinking of the hearts of men that would say, would say, did I get an A? Changing it from a letter that regulates to a spirit that moves the inward heart of a man. It says, I'm poor. I'm mourning. I'm weak. You're merciful. I cast my life upon you. So when Jesus says, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of God. We must understand there is no one righteous but one, King Jesus. And if we will come to King Jesus, we will be counted righteous because of his work on the cross.
You know, I'd ask you this morning, is your life covered by the grace of God? I mean, don't think for a moment that just the fact that because you've warmed a seat at CTK for who knows how long, that that's a receipt of your righteousness. We don't put that on like a Pharisee. Our righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not our do's and our don'ts. Not our sitting in church. Not our this, not our that. Jesus alone. And the man or woman who has been born again is is one, look, if you've been born again, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you something. Your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee. If you've been born again, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because you've come to recognize your poverty of spirit, your need for Jesus, that he is meek, that he is merciful, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, becoming a peacemaker, becoming pure in heart, those are signs of Christ's work in you. As I think about this text, I just think, man, we ought always to examine ourselves. Ask God to set us free from the practices of the Pharisees. In what follows in, the, uh, in, in this message on the sermon of the mount, Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to practice the righteousness, his righteousness. And in a word, it means this. It means to follow him. To follow, follow him. That's our righteousness. To follow him and to let his heart transform our hearts. It's the new law. The law of Christ. The law of love. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They're going to close us in a song here.